Welcome to the Martinskirk Podcast, a publication of sermons and lessons from Trinity Reformed Church of Martinsburg. Trinity Reformed exists to declare the victory of Jesus Christ through worship and practice to the ends of the earth. To learn more about our congregation, visit martinskirk.com. Well, happy Palm Sunday. We don't have any palm branches, but you can imagine some jackets or or palm branches spread along the aisle here to the Lord's table. And this is a day that's often been celebrated on and off throughout, uh, throughout the church for centuries. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this and uh, your, your background or your circles, maybe bringing palm branches yourself or maybe some skits done during the Lord's service uh, uh, while you were growing up. Maybe you remember those sorts of events in your church experience. And we often, we often love these sorts of celebrations, but what's interesting about this event is we often look past what this event really means. We like all the, uh, the festivities surrounded Palm Sunday. We like that it points to Easter. We like the story about Jesus riding a colt. But do we know what this event is even about? Do we know what our Lord did on Palm Sunday? Now, we know it is about Jesus riding on a, on a young donkey, a colt. And he's riding over clothes and palm branches, leafy branches, on his way to Jerusalem. We know that it's supposed to be a sign of some sort of king for Israel. We know all of this. But unfortunately, in all of the symbols and in all the celebration around this event, we've actually oftentimes, and myself included, have missed the meaning behind the symbols. What is our Lord saying? Why did they lay down leafy branches? Why did they cast their clothing down in front of Jesus? What is the context surrounding this event? And to get to the bottom of these questions, we must understand not only the surrounding context of the Gospel of Mark, but also the Old Testament allusions that he's giving here in Mark chapter 11. So let's start in the Gospel of Mark. In the preceding verses here, if you're looking in your Bibles, in chapter 10, Verses 46 through 52, Jesus is at a a place called Jericho, which has a lot of meaning behind that particular location, if you know the Old Testament scriptures. So he's at Jericho with his disciples and with a multitude who's traveling with him. And there was a blind man there named Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, and he's begging on the side of this Roman road, and he hears that Jesus is coming. So he begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He recognizes the royal line that Jesus is a part of. He's he's a part of the line of David. And he's calling out to this king for help. So when Jesus calls Bartimaeus to himself, Bartimaeus throws off his cloak and immediately obeys him. And he asks Jesus to be healed. And our Lord heals him because of his faith. And this is, the, this is the context around, or right before this event in Mark chapter 11. And right after healing Bartimaeus, he jumps into the traveling, uh, the traveling crowd and follows Jesus to Jerusalem. So this encounter between Jesus and Bartimaeus in the preceding verses is a picture of Jesus' journey from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem in Mark 11, 1 through 11. So like Bartimaeus, the pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem laid down their cloaks before the son of David. And they too cry out for salvation with the chanting of Hosannas. 
The people of Israel are being prepared for their salvation. The journey here in Mark 11 is a journey that's all too familiar for the people of Israel. It's an exodus. It's an exodus from death to life. But it's an exodus that they seem to be unaware of in in their dealings with Jesus. The triumphal entry begins at the place of Jesus' death, only a few days later, and ends in the house of God, his holy temple. And like Bartimaeus, we all must make that journey with our Lord. We must cast off our old self, seek Jesus, and follow him. Jesus is our great king who brings his people out of misery and out of sin into the glorious presence of God through faith. Our faith... It's an instrument that brings us out of, dar- of darkness into light, from death to glory in Christ Jesus. And this is where Israel is in Mark chapter 11, in misery and in death. And Jesus has come to conquer sin and death and lead his people to glory. This is the triumphal entry. So starting in Mark chapter 11, verse 1, we can see this theme of death and misery sort of hidden hidden in some words here. Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem with his people, and they come to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, Beth in Hebrew means house. So if you see Beth in front of anything, Bethany, Bethphage, um, Bethsaida, if you see that in the Bible, it starts with house. House of is, is what this place is named. And Bethphage is house of unripe figs. That seems kind of odd to name your place House of Unripe Figs, but that that was the name of that particular location. And in Bethany, is actually called the House of Misery. The House of Misery. So in that, we can kind of see an allusion to the Exodus event. Egypt was a house of misery for Israel. Israel was an unripe fruit who was ripening, waiting to be plucked up from the land of Egypt And led to the land of fruitfulness, the land of Canaan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees of the first century were holding Israel to bondage, or in bondage, to sin and to Satan under an abusive law and under uh, unfaithfulness. And to display Christ's conquest over this bondage, Jesus begins his kingly entry near Bethphage and Bethany, the house of misery, at the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is the place of his eventual death and his ascension into heaven. And we often think of Jesus' death happening in some other place. You might hear this in commentaries or read this in other locations. But this location actually makes the most sense for Jesus' death. Because it overlooked Jerusalem plainly. And it also was a spot easily seen by the whole city. This would have been a known location the Mount of Olives. And it is also a garden filled with olive trees. So the famous depictions of Jesus being suspended on a piece of lumber staked into the dirt is likely unrealistic. Those who were crucified didn't carry a whole cross. They, they would carry the cross beam. And the soldiers were not expected to create some sort of apparatus to suspend the victim in midair. Most likely the one crucified will be nailed to a tree something already standing. It just didn't make any practical sense to dig a hole, to craft a a post, 
to nail a crossbeam to the post, to lift the post into the hole and secure the, pole, the, the post so that it doesn't fall, um, all for a crucifixion, when there are plenty of trees just hanging about that they could nail them to. So the Mount of Olives was most likely the location of Christ's death, and it was the location overlooking the city. It had a, an abundance of wood. The location names nearby uh, made a lot of sense. For crucifixion. I mean, house of misery sounds about right. So this was probably the place of Jesus' crucifixion. We know for certain that this place was where Jesus ascended into the heavenly places. So he will descend to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives and also descend to his death from the Mount of Olives. And he will ascend in authority as king over Israel on this mountain. And ascend into the heavens after his resurrection on this mountain. So starting here at the house of misery on the Mount of Olives, Jesus calls for two of his disciples to go and fetch him a colt, a young donkey. And a colt that's never been ridden, probably rather unruly if you think about it. And he tells them to go to the village opposite of them and find this colt that is tied up by the road. So he's obviously prepared this ahead of time. He gives them permission to loose this colt and to bring it to him. Now, it sounds like he's telling them to steal the donkey, but he follows it up with saying, and if anyone says to you, what do you why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So our Lord has a plan prepared. Now, he either arranged for this to happen in person, he could have done this, or... He knew the father's plan ahead of time, and he knew that he would relinquish his cult. Either way, our Lord has made arrangements. He's planned this. This is a dress rehearsal, so to speak. This is a staged event that he has prepared in his entrance into Jerusalem. But why a cult? Why a donkey? You think a a king would come in on a a giant horse or something with with a, a band of of armed citizens. Well, first, it fulfills the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Amen. So the donkey is a, a kingly or a royal animal for Israel. And it doesn't just show that Jesus is a king. It shows that he's a specific king. He's a specific king. He's a son of David. Now, David's son, Solomon, was anointed king in David's stead in the same way. In 1 Kings chapter 1, it depicts Solomon riding on a colt down to Gihon so that he would be anointed king. And there he would sit on the throne of David over Israel and Judah. So Jesus is showing that he is the son of David that Bartimaeus had cried out for in the preceding verses. And lastly, a young donkey shows humility. It's lowliness, it's humility that is shown when he rides in on a donkey. Again, it's not a valiant steed, it's not a a great white horse that he will later come at the end of history on. It is, it's not, it's not a donkey, a donkey's not a military animal. You don't think of, of battles where the king charges in on a donkey. Our Lord conquers through his lowliness and humiliation, not through physical might or status, at least not yet. 
But he is a king nonetheless, and one who will lead his people out of the bondage of corrupted Jerusalem and into the life of the kingdom of God. So he's going to Jerusalem to establish a new kingdom. And he's going to establish this new kingdom in his own body and in his own blood. So this triumphal entrance is a foreshadowing of Israel's exodus from the bondage of sin and misery. And our Lord gives us clues to this truth along the journey. His disciples place garments or cloaks on the donkey. And he sits on them. The crowd lays out clothing along the road with leafy branches as well for the donkey to tread on. And the leafy branches are really the biggest clue. Where else do we see leafy branches in the scriptures? Leafy branches, palm branches, those sorts of of branches were used during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament. Israel would, would use them to construct little huts to live in. And it would remind them of their first encampment after the Exodus event. And we see this in Leviticus chapter 23. Starting in verse 42, it states, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Amen. So after the Exodus event, Israel travels to a place called Sukkoth. Sukkoth, which means booths. Quite literally. So they would construct booths at this location made out of leafy branches and palm branches to live in. And they would do this before heading into the wilderness where they would dwell in tents, which Numbers chapter 1 tells us. So Israel had made these booths outside of their, their homes to live in, according to the law, for a week. And they would have known what palm branches and other leafy branches actually symbolized. It symbolized the exodus. It symbolizes a deliverance from the house of bondage. It meant salvation. And in addition to the branches, we have clothing and cloaks. They were the outer layer of their clothing. It wouldn't, it wouldn't take off their shirt and throw it down. It was, it was an outer cloak that they would throw down before the animal. And they tossed it before the colt as he walked. And the temple in the wilderness was the tabernacle, which was a tent. It was a tent that was covered in linen cloth which was the same, the same cloth that they used for their own clothing, and covered in animal skins. So, you know, think of that as you wish. But we have this, this idea of the tabernacle traveling to Jerusalem. The new Israel is encamping around a new tabernacle. The temple made flesh is coming to Jerusalem. And the people of God are encamped around this new tabernacle, as he moves from the land of misery to the mountain of the Lord. But this is not just any tabernacle. It's a royal tabernacle. They're serving a priest and a king. And there's another scene in the Old Testament with similar imagery to this. 2 Kings chapter 9 and the coronation of Jehu. Cloaks and outer garments were thrown on the steps leading to his throne where Jehu would be sworn in or anointed or or coronated as king over Israel. And he was standing on clothing. The king's subjects dwell under his feet. That's what that's pointing to. To cast your cloak off is to say that you submit to the authority of another. You're, giving your, you're, you're submitting yourself 
to that person. And Bartimaeus did this at the command of Jesus uh, to go to him. And the people of Israel are doing it at the sight of King Jesus riding to Jerusalem. They're pledging their allegiance to this king. Jesus ascends above the booths and the tents of his people as king of Israel. And while these loyal subjects are placing their garments and leafy branches under this cult, they cry out, Hosanna, which means save, we pray, or we pray that you would save us. Save us, please. And they're singing out of Psalm 118, which is the psalm that we recited together. And it's often sung on the way to feasts. Psalm 118 is often sung on the way to feast. And in this case, it's the Passover. It's not the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the Passover. Psalm 118 speaks of the mercy of God on all those who call on him in distress, in all those who are in misery or sorrow. It speaks of the nation surrounding Israel and a king who would come who was rejected by men, but yet chosen by God to be the chief cornerstone for his people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He will save his people and glorify the kingdom of David. This is what Psalm 118 tells us. And this is what they sing as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Think about what an amazing sight that would have been. The triumphal entry is how Jesus should conquer. When we think of a conquering king, we think of one who is being praised and lauded as he goes in to sit on his throne. And yet Jesus is silent during this whole event. He's silent as he, uh, as he ascends the temple mount. He is humbly exhibiting his lordship, knowing full well that he would hear a different refrain from Hosanna only a few days from then. He would hear, crucify, crucify. We must descend again, or he must descend again, before he is exalted again. So while the people sing for joy in preparation for the Passover, he is the silent sacrifice, a lamb going to the slaughter. They had no idea that they were adorning the Lamb of God with their praises. In Psalm 118, it says, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horn of the altar. Think about singing that as Jesus comes in and then seeing him three days later, carrying his cross and being bound to the wood of the cross in his death. And when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he makes his way immediately to the temple. That's where sacrifices go, to the temple of God. Only this temple has been corrupted by men and the sins of men. And he inspects it as a high priest inspects a house for leprosy, for uncleanness. And he looks around the temple that would be be destroyed only a few few years after him, following the destruction of his own body. So the true temple would be rejected by the authorities of the earthly temple. And in turn, the earthly authorities would be rejected by their Father in heaven. So the earthly mountain of God has been corrupted by the sins of men, and it was terminal. The only way for Israel to receive new life was to die. And the only way for Israel to ascend was to descend. And this is what Jesus was preparing for. The triumphal entry was a trial run for his crucifixion. Only a few days later, he would not be carried to the temple on a colt and hailed as a king, but carry from that temple his own cross. 
He would not be going to Jerusalem, but to the Mount of Olives. He would not be walking on garments and palm branches, but a road stained with his own blood. He would not receive the praises of his people, but the mockery of his enemies. And in ascending the Mount of Olives on Good Friday, he would begin his descent into death on our behalf. He knew that he must go to the depths to be raised to glory. Salvation has come, but he has come in silence as a lamb to the slaughter. And after fulfilling this rehearsal for his own death, he makes his way to Bethany, the house of, ministry, the house of misery, to prepare for the real thing. And while staying in the house of misery, he would curse a fig tree for bearing no fruit. So here we go with figs again. And the fig tree is a symbol of the unfaithful Israel around him, the Israel who would reject the first fruits from the grave, which is our Lord Jesus Christ, who would be under judgment because of this death. And then we have the unripe figs, the faithful, that would ripen in the light of Christ and be ready for the plucking in the last day. And in this triumphal entry that sandwiches between Bartimaeus and this fig tree parable, we see the gospel of the kingdom of God. That the king has come and he will judge those who pay no allegiance to him, who oppress the poor in spirit, who crush the meek of the earth. This king will judge them in his own death. And just as his disciples and the faithful multitude followed, followed him to Jerusalem, they will follow him in his death to be raised to glory by the power of the Spirit. You can only ascend after you've descended. So what do all these layers and all these images mean for us this morning? Well, we got a glimpse of that. We can see the gospel clearly in this. But it means that we, are all, we were all once like Bartimaeus. We were all blind and all begging, and we were all completely helpless until our Lord came and told us to come to him. And it also means that we are all like Bartimaeus right now, following Jesus on the road to the mountain of God. Only our king has already gone through death already. He's already descended into death. And us, following him, have already gone through death in him. So when we travel along the road in humble submission and service to our king, when we sing hosannas asking him to save his people from their sins, we know that he has already done it. So there's no insecurity in our prayer. He has already fulfilled what he came to fulfill. He has saved his people and he will save his people on the last day. And though there may be silence and there may be times of misery for us as we, as we travel that road with our Lord, we know that there is no silence when our Lord returns in glory. Our joyful praise and thanksgiving that we do right now for the ascended one will be untainted by our own sin, will be untainted by our own suffering, will be untainted by our own misery. Our sure hope is that as we walk, we walk with Christ. And this is what Holy Week is about. Holy Week is the week of Christ's preparation for his death on the cross and for his passion for us. And it is all about the hope of the Easter morning. 
It is about the suffering of Christ on the way to his death, but it is also about the mercy of God through it all. It is about the justice of God in vindicating his only son. So yes, it's about suffering, but suffering for what? Suffering for whom? Our Lord Jesus suffered greatly and died not so that we may live. I want you to hear that. He, he suffered greatly and he died not so that we would live, but so that we too might die. His garment was handed over at the hour of his death and given to the world so that we too would lay our cloaks in submission to him. He died so that we would die. He was raised so that we too will be raised in him. Where he goes, we go. Where he goes, we go. So this, is, this dress rehearsal of the triumphal entry for our Lord's passion and for his, his crucifixion was a rehearsal for his people as well. It wasn't just for him. The same people who watched him ride into Jerusalem while singing his praises were the same people who watched him stumble and bleed on his way out of Jerusalem only a few days later. Jesus was showing them and us right now what salvation really looks like. They asked for it and he delivered. You must lose your life to gain it. So in our, our Lord's lowliness, he was exalted above all the earth. Under his feet are the kings and all the peoples of the earth. For those who love him and fear him, they follow in his train, pitching tents and booths along the way, staying near to Jesus at every turn. And for those who hate him, they are trampled in judgment and left in the wake. But our Lord has promised glory. He has promised honor. And he has promised a kingdom without end for those who love him and keep his commandments. For those who follow him in the way. For those who lay down their lives before him. For those who bless his name and call out for salvation. He has promised and he has delivered. So have faith like Bartimaeus. Forsake it all to be near the king. Be made well through faith in Christ Jesus and follow in his train. Follow his footsteps. He is our great God and king who brings his people out of misery and out of sin into his glorious presence. And he has brought you out of misery and out of sin. He is near to you on the road and he will keep you to the end. May our lives be filled with this refrain, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.